Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. It is 8.07 in the Twin Cities. Uh, time now for the one and only Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. And I feel like every week we say this or I say this. I, it just – when it seems like the news cycle cannot get any more crazy or, or bizarre or, or extraordinary, yeah. it, it it does. It does. It really does. There is so much going on right now. So I once again, I am so grateful that you are here to talk about it with me because uh, – uh, my goodness, a lot to talk about. There is. I was going to say, don't you feel like there's like this, there's this incredible sort of like intensity and almost exhaustion from it after a while too? Yeah, it, it really is. And it's just, um, it seems like it's never ending. And, and the Trump situation seems to be almost gathering momentum like a locomotive. But we want to get into that in just a bit. But first of all, let's just talk your take on the Yanez verdict here, the not guilty not a surprise at all. You know, we, I think we might have talked, you know, I think you and I texted a few times this week, just to let, you know, to let sort of the listeners know that, you know, we sort of like, you know, we text back and forth, right. sort of stay in contact with things. And, and, I, and I actually, was it on Wednesday, I texted you, I think it was Wednesday morning and said, sometime Wednesday afternoon, I said midday afternoon. Yes, and you were right. <laughs> I, got I, said, I, said, I said the jury would tell the judge that we're hopelessly deadlocked, um, and the judge would say go back um, and, and, and deliberate more. I swear to God, people, he actually did that. <laughs> and, and what was even more, what was amazing about it, it was 2.30. I mean, if you couldn't pick it any more middle of the afternoon than that. Um, I, mean, I actually, I was, so I all along thought it was going to be um, either a hung jury or not guilty. And, 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 and I, and it did, it turned out to be a not guilty. And I'm not surprised because I think we've talked a little bit about before is that it's very, very hard to get a conviction against a police officer that the way the law is actually set up, you know, under the constitution and state law, um, that juries will have it difficult to overturn, um, or second guess a police officer's decision, plus on top of which I think there is a natural sympathy that juries have for police officers who are going out and putting their life on the line. So not a, not a surprise As well there should be. That's right. Which they As well there should be. They should be, they should be commended for the work that they do, and we should give police officers a, lo- a lot of slack. Uh, but in this situation here, clearly there were a lot of people who were upset about it. But again, not a surprise in terms of how the verdict actually played out, because what you really have to show is that the officer wasn't objectively reasonable in his use of force, and that he believed that either his life um, or the life of, of, of the public, public safety, was in danger. And I still think that his testimony a week ago Friday, where he was put on the witness stand, and he said that I, I feared for my life or I thought I was going to die or something like that. That's exactly what um, he I, said, yeah. Yeah, I thought his testimony was so powerfully compelling that I thought that was critical um, to, I think, the jury deliberations. Right. And, of course, that came at the end. The first One of the first pieces of evidence that was introduced that I have not seen, and I, I did not hear him uh, testify, but apparently it was remarkably powerful, uh, is there is dash cam video that is going to be released this week that apparently, and I've talked to a number of people who have seen it, who say that it is extremely damaging against Officer Yanez. Obviously, during the course of the trial, there was other testimony that balanced that out, and in the end, the jury saw it Officer Yanez's way, uh, and I think 
you know, I think a lot of people who were in the courtroom say that, you know, that that testimony was indeed very powerful. I think this video, though, uh, is is which is going to be released this week, uh, I think is going to upset an awful lot of people. And I think uh, I almost wish that, that there could be cameras in the courtroom so people could see not just that, this video that's going to be released, but also offer Officer Yanez's own testimony. Uh, but obviously that's not to be because that's not the way the system works here in Minnesota with no cameras in the courtroom. But uh, obviously a lot of people are uh, very, very upset about it. And uh, the Yanez family saying that they will file a civil lawsuit in federal court against Officer Yanez. What do you think is going to happen with that? Well, I, I want to see what exactly what the claims are going to make because I was actually sort of going back and thinking about this because at the there's, at the federal level you could file what's called a 42 U.S. Code 1983 lawyers call it a 1983 lawsuit which is essentially a, a suit for for civil rights deprivation and if you um, unlawfully take somebody's life, you know, in this case, a person of color's life, I mean, you've, you've, you've committed a pretty significant civil rights deprivation. So, so I think that's one possibility in terms of where they may be going. It should also be pointed out here that the federal government could also come in and also file civil rights charges, too. Uh, given, but given the fact that now, the Trump administration, you know, really hasn't replaced, you know, I think what the U.S. attorney here, and, and there's a civil service, I think it's more the career sewer here, I think it's unlikely. The other possibility, and I'm surprised they haven't thought about this yet, is that you could also file uh, a wrongful death suit um, against the officer. And the reason why I mentioned and, and that, that would not necessarily be in, in federal court. This that would, would be, be state court. I, I, I believe they're going to file something in federal court. We don't have the particulars yet. but Right, right. And that's why I'm saying is that I want to see what they're doing in federal court. Because federal court, it would be the civil rights ca- it would be a civil rights case. Um, and in some situations, and I think in this one, there would be potential like monetary damages if they were to win, um, along with getting attorney's fees. But the parallel I was going to draw here is that when O.J. Simpson um, was was acquitted, you know, back in that famous trial, you know, you know, you know, for the murder trial, I think it was a couple years later. Uh, this is in California. Right. Um, the Fred Goldman, the Goldman, Goldman family, right, they sued for wrongful death, and they won, and they won. Um, and so that's critical to think about um, in terms of another possible route to go, because you could also sue for wrongful death in Minnesota. Now, what's critical for regarding whether they are suing in federal court under under civil rights law or under um, wrongful death or whatever they might want to also consider in state law, what's important here is the difference in the burden of proof. And what I mean by that, the criminal trial, it was beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a pretty high standard, um, versus for a civil, a civil suit such as civil rights deprivation or, let's say, wrongful death, it's preponderance of evidence. And, and the reason why is that if, if, we, if, if they could argue, just simply say that, that on balance there's more information suggesting that, that the officer was responsible um, for, for um, Castillo's, Fernando's Castillo's death, or if there's more evidence as opposed to less that he was responsible for a civil rights um, violation, then it's possible to win. So it's a lower standard of proof, a lower burden. And that's exactly what was going on in the O.J. Simpson case. Again, it was 20-some years ago. I'm forgetting the date now, where um, the criminal trial was beyond a reasonable doubt. Then they came back under a different standard, um, which is a lower burden of proof. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, though, is that even if they are going to file, file in federal court, 
um, um, under civil rights or state court under, let's say, wrongful death, whatever it may be, if they want to add to that also. Many of the defenses that the officer, you know, Jan has raised will be also available to him also in that civil trial, too. All right. Chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, want to talk to him about the shooting at the congressional baseball practice that left uh, U.S. Representative Steve Scalise uh, seriously wounded. He has been upgraded now to serious from critical. Uh, three others were also wounded. Uh, this shooting has sent shockwaves through the nation's capital. Uh, more with David Schultz after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 819 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Obviously, this week we saw this horrific shooting at the Republican baseball practice at 7 o'clock in the morning in the suburb of Arlington, Virginia. Uh, a horrific shooting. Uh, Steve Scalise, the congressman, uh, actually one of the surgeons said, I think, believe yesterday, that he was actually at risk of imminent death when he was brought in, uh, having been shot with his high-caliber rifle. Uh, a lot of hand-wringing here uh, on, on both sides here, conservatives and liberals, both uh, sort of bemoaning the rhetoric, saying this was inevitable. What are your thoughts about this? Well, at one level, it was inevitable because what we've really seen is the, the ratcheting up of, I think, political tension in the United States in the last couple of years. And we know as we've been building in terms of, of the polarization, and I think not just in terms of polarization, but also I want to say an incredible intolerance, I think, for the other side. You know, we have all kinds of polls out, and, and I talk. And I, and I give a couple of talks about this at this point, and I'll give you a great statistic at this point. Um, um, approximately, t- according to a Pew Center for People in the Press survey a couple of years ago, approximately 25% of those surveyed said they would be seriously upset if a member of their family married somebody um, or who dated somebody who was a member of, of a different political party. <laughs> um, really? Well, and, and I guess there were all those stories about Thanksgiving, you know, yeah. if, this past, you know, Thanksgiving in the aftermath of the Trump victory, which was unexpected. Uh, so I, I, I had not heard that one. But Yeah, no, it's a crowd. It reminds me of those old surveys from like, what, the 1960s or 50s. You know, if your family members would be upset if you married out of faith or if you married somebody from a different race or, or you know, fill in the blank or something like that. But hey, the point is, is that we, we've reached a point where it's not just in terms of the polarization and disagreement, but it's the outright intolerance and then throw into it, you know, some some of the, you know, the social media stirring and some of the 24/7, you know, you know, news talk or you know, you know, talk talk radio or talk television like that, um, and and I think for a lot of people, um, they they're on pins and needles at this point in terms of sort of seeing the other side as the enemy, and I think that's sort of what came out um, earlier this week. And that's not that's not very good, you know, because you know we're supposed to be able to talk through differences, and that doesn't seem to be um, going very well. And I'll have to say at this point, our current president, you know, with the way he sends out his his you know his tweets, you know, and text messages all the time, um, isn't doing very much to also cool down some of that rhetoric either. Right, um, and clearly um, there was sort of a, a momentary truce here, which is held somewhat held for the past few days. Is that permanent or do you see us see the both sides just kind of going back to being at each other's throats? I think we'll go back to each other's throat at this point. The the um 
the, I was going to say the political base support that is fueling that partisanship is still there, and that didn't abate. You know, it might have sort of affected members of Congress, but once they get back into sort of the thick of things, um, I think it, I think they go back to the patterns they're in. Plus, I would say, again, one of the things I think is going on right now is the unusual dimension, is not only do we have the debate between, let's say, Democrats and Republicans in terms of that polarization and heightened rhetoric, but I would have to say at this point, we also have it between Republicans in Congress versus Donald Trump as a Republican president. They, you know, we, so we have lots of different dimensions that are going on here in terms of, of heightened rhetoric. Uh, one thing I thought was striking is that oftentimes after these shootings, uh, someone will call for gun control yeah. measures, and there's just been none of that. And I thought one of the things that was so, um, you know, horrifying about this is, is that you know Congressman Scalise was just hit once, mm-hmm. and appeared at first it, it really appeared like he was sort of okay. Obviously, he'd been shot, so it was much as somebody can be okay when they've been shot. But it was uh, what happens with these types of of wounds, with these kinds of bullets, is that they travel with such a velocity into the body and create tremendous damage inside. The the bullet breaks up and fragments, and the damage to internal organs were such that while he was coherent and talking on that field— he was in a state of shock when he arrived, and, and the physician said, the surgeon said, he was at imminent risk of death by the time he had been medevaced to that nearby hospital. Uh, you know, what some Republicans are saying is that they are actually sort of saying they want the right in Washington, D.C. and in those areas where I don't think there is a right to conceal and carry. They want to be able to do that mm-hmm. if they have a permit, right. uh, which is, a you know, a, a different sprint. In the aftermath of some of these mass shootings, yeah, I was going to say that they, they it, it, whether or not they can override state law, it's unclear they can do that on that matter because states get to make the decision regarding you know conceal and carry within their own borders. Um, Congress m- might be able to do that in Washington D.C. you know because that is a you know that is that, that is federal territory, but it's still not clear that even if if these other members of Congress had been armed, they would have been able to stop somebody because, if I remember correctly, the person who was shooting was using, what, um, a semi-automatic AK-47 at this point, and I, I, I doubt simply having a handgun um, is, is going to be enough. Well, that's what, that's what the police had. That's right. The, 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 they just had pistols, which was just, you know, makes what they did all, all the more remarkable there. Right, and I was going to say, and, and police officers are are highly trained in terms of how to use their weapons and think and they're, and they're training constantly i mean i mean they're, i mean it's, it's every every month they're doing training if not more frequently and so to think that that they you know would have difficulty defending or protecting people versus somebody who just sort of does conceal and carry and says that well i'm going to be able to carry this and defend myself um, against somebody who carries that kind of a weapon just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense just in terms of understanding you know types of weapons that are being used and skill levels and so I do think you're correct, you know, that the, the, the reaction right now is interesting. But I was also going to say, wasn't it in the last week, or was it this week, I think it was, was the one-year anniversary of the Orlando shooting also? Yes, yes, yes. within the past week, yes, 10 days. Past, wait, I just remember what the exact, sometimes the days blur by. But I say that because, if I remember correctly, 
After that shooting last year, there was relative silence also regarding uh, gun control. And what's really become interesting is that Sandy Hook was sort of the last sort of effort for Congress to try to you know to move anything through. And Obama, you know, after that, just literally gave up on pushing on you know on any kind of sort of handgun or any kind of gun regulation. And there seems to be no appetite even after after this shooting. And so it looks like at least for now. Um, that no matter how bad some of these strategies are in terms of what levels are occurring, there's really no momentum or no movement for any kind of gun regulation, even though I will say that if we actually look at public opinion polls in the United States, there is an enormous percentage of the population, in excess of 80%, that actually do support some simple things such as universal background checks and a few other things. Well, and, and, and this gentleman passed. I mean, he, he, he purchased these. These were legally purchased weapons. It's just, Correct. I, I just thought, you know, it was, it was striking just, to, you know, how, how powerful, how strong these weapons are when used um, and how much damage they can do. Yeah. Yeah, these are, I mean, these are not guns that are meant, you know, for target practice and shooting out, you know, tin cans. Uh, they're really meant to sort of, you know, you know, to, you know, to kill and maim. And, and the ballistics in terms of how the bullets are designed are meant to do things such as, you know, sh- you know shatter through the body, as you pointed out sort of a couple of minutes ago here. And they really do. Once they hit the body, they will ricochet off bones. They will actually go through bones. They'll do all kinds of nasty things. All right. Well, listen, we do have to take a break and give you some weather. When we come back... I want let's talk about uh, the president and the situation with Russia, because the president has basically said, I am now under investigation, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess, you know, this 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 situation has clearly evolved uh, and, and this is continues to evolve unbelievably rapidly, which is sort of breathtaking, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you would agree with that, do, but uh, uh, remarkable stuff. OK, let's take a quick break. We'll give you some weather. And then when we come back, we'll have more with David Schultz after this. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment and more. Play it at play.it. It is 834 in the Twin Cities. Um, as I was briefly checking the president's Twitter feed before I chat with Professor David Schultz, I did want to let you know because I came across a number of tweets uh, from Metro Transit and I did check with my friends over at WCCO-TV. There are protests tonight uh, in downtown Minneapolis uh, against the acquittal of Officer uh, Geronimo Yanez in the shooting death of Philando Castillo. The protesters apparently marched from Loring Park down Hennepin Avenue in downtown Minneapolis, disrupting traffic and some bus service, even briefly the light rail service. They marched to the precinct that's in downtown Minneapolis. Now they're apparently marching back towards Loring Park on Hennepin Avenue. Bottom line, folks, uh, downtown Minneapolis, uh, not, not, it's not, does not appear to be the, the degree to which it was last night when all of Interstate 94 was shut down. Uh, there is still traffic going, but there are disruptions. So I just wanted to let you know that and just uh, keep it here. If we have any updates, we'll let you know. But uh, that's the latest from downtown Minneapolis. All right, Professor David Schultz, uh, the situation with the president, uh, you know, when, when, when last we left him. <laughs> um, Sounds like a the, morality play. Yes, when last we, we left the president on whether he was under investigation or not, the former FBI director, James Comey, had told him that he was personally not under investigation. Uh, that was just a week ago we were hearing that update about, you know, conversations that the uh, former FBI director had had with uh, the, the president-elect and then the president uh, really since about December, th- I guess three meetings. That has changed, hasn't it? 
it appears to have changed. Now, when Trump tweeted about it the other day, I think what I'm just recently saying, I'm under investigation, it was less clear whether or not he had been told he was under investigation um, or that he picked it up from Fox News, which said he was under investigation. But multiple sources, I think what Fox, Washington Post, a few others, seem to be leaking or suggesting that he actually is. And I think I've seen a couple of pieces in the New York Times indicating that that the focus of, of Bob Mueller's investigations now is including uh, whether or not the President of the United States um, was obstructing um, in the investigation, obstructing justice into the Russian connection that included, among other things, um, perhaps the firing of former FBI Director James Comey. Well, I, the tweet from yesterday, right. I'm going to read the tweet here because I, I think this tweet is pretty clear. I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director, exclamation point, witch hunt. So what he's saying here is he's being investigated by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein for um, firing the FBI director. And Rosenstein was, in fact, the the, the man who wrote the memo that Trump said, uh, you know, and, and there were a number of versions of this. Uh, said justified his firing of the FBI director. So I, I think that seems to me pretty clear. Is the president saying he's under investigation? It, well, it does appear to be at this point. Again, there's some dispute regarding whether or not that memo that was written um, that Trump says it was the basis of his decision to fire was in fact um, actually advocated for that. So there's, so there's a lot of sort of you know, questionable assumptions out there, or statements here. But yes, it does appear at this point that he is under an investigation for obstruction of justice. And what now makes it, I think, even more surreal, if I guess I can use that as a word here, is that the rumors surfacing this week that, in fact, he's not necessarily committed to keeping Mueller in place, and there's been rumors that that he might be willing to fire him also. And so if, in fact, Mueller is now going in the direction of, of looking at the president for obstruction of justice, if the president were to fire him because of that, that just sort of compounds the problem. I, I don't want to say it's the obstructing of the investigation of looking into obstruction of justice. That's the part that sounds surreal. And and there's a lot going on here because, you know, the, the president has said that, you know, he used the memo, the memo, did it advocate the firing, did it not advocate the firing? Then the president later said that the real reason he fired uh, FBI Director Comey was because of the Russia investigation, right? Uh, which is a whole nother matter. But, um, you know, it, it's there, there do seem to be sort of multiple parts here and Clearly, it appears to me that that the president did, in fact, float as a trial balloon this firing of Bob Mueller, which, of course, is something that I think everybody seems to agree that he can't do, Mm -hmm. Uh, because that would be reminiscent of a a moment in history that would – immediately draw parallels with Watergate. Of course, that would be the famous Saturday Night Massacre where Nixon, um, with Nixon fires Archibald Cox. A special prosecutor. A special prosecutor. And so you're right. That, that becomes a solid parallel. And I think actually if you were to try to fire him, excuse me, sorry, that, that, you would, that would, the direction would go to the head of the Justice Department. Now, Sessions might do it, but it's also not clear um, whether Sessions would want to do it, since he supposedly recused himself from this, would it go to the assistant attorney general, and that person might refuse and resign? Well, and, you know, the, the thing is, is, is that, that all of this seems to be, you know, again, happening so quickly. And, the, you know, the selection of Bob Mueller, 
draw drew unanimous mm-hmm. praise from both Republicans and Democrats. In fact, apparently Bob Mueller was even perhaps interviewed as a possible successor to Comey for FBI director before the uh, before this all happened. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's uh, multi layered, but. In terms of of the level of seriousness here, it appears this really is becoming more and more grave. It is. It is. I was going to say is that the the inclined plane, you know, sort of how it sort of accelerates, really started whether it was with the firing of firing of Comey or with the testimony of Comey, which was what now barely what ten days ago or something like that. I mean, it seems like an eternity ago with the way the news cycle has moved. But the but the direction has shifted so dramatically, um, you know, in, you know, in the last you know ten days and clearly this week. I mean, it's already we're forgetting the fact that it was the beginning of this week that the Attorney General Jeff Sessions also testified uh, uh, before Congress with many people sort of you know, left unsatisfied by the fact that Sessions literally said almost nothing during the time that he was testifying, at least publicly. So so I think you're absolutely correct in terms of how the the issues surrounding, you know, possible obstruction of justice by the President of the United States in terms of what he's doing and, and what he is saying about why he did certain things are intensifying. And part of that intensification also is not just in terms of what, what Trump has been doing, but it gets back to his tweets. You know, the fact that his own tweets, his own um, text messages are some of the most damning things that are being used against him at this point, and he seems incapable um, of of not sending out those text messages or in terms of using language that would perhaps help him. And so if I were his attorneys, you know, again, and I know there's been stories in the New York Times and Washington Post about this, they've been trying to urge him to basically knock off the text messaging. Um, he does not seem to want to do that. Right. And, you know, Fox News as well. I mean, it, apparently everyone in his inner circle is saying, lay off the tweets. <laughs> you know, just don't do it. Stop mm-hmm. or, or, or think before you tweet. But but these things will, will all, you know, potentially be used. I mean, to me, it's also so striking that, again, we, 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 this administration is so young. It's not even six months old. It's not even six months old, and it doesn't seem to be able to pick up any steam. There's a really good piece and I think it's today's Washington Post, I can't remember if it's for today's edition or going into tomorrow's edition, pointing out the fact that the administration, of course, has been slow to fill critical positions. Many senior-level positions are not filled, but the piece points out in saying that a lot of Republicans have basically decided they don't want to apply for those positions um, because of a fear of, of, of how it of, of a of not wanting to work for Trump now, and b a fear of how it how it sort of hurt their reputation. And it's, I think it's a Washington Post piece, and it's a really quite interesting one in terms of saying that many of them are talking to career counselors and saying that would taking a job um, as a senior official in the Trump administration actually hurt my career. And that's normally a very odd thing to think about that that taking a senior position for the president of the United States would be would be damaging to your career but that seems to be what's going on now so the problems of the Trump administration are starting to feed upon themselves making it difficult to hire and replace people um, and with that making it impossible 
for the Trump administration to move anything in terms of public policy. I mean, I mean think about the last at least the last month, month and a half now, discussions of infrastructure, tax policy, budgetary policy, health care, they've completely disappeared from any discussion in terms of Washington um, and from Congress, and everything is so consumed up now with Trump and you know the Russian inquiry obstruction of justice that literally nothing is getting done in Washington. All right, and, and you mentioned that, that there are reports of some you know top Republicans you know, being concerned about, you know, having a job with the Trump administration. Uh, just tonight, breaking, uh, Sheriff David Clark, uh, the Milwaukee sheriff, uh, a prominent African-American sheriff, again, the Milwaukee sheriff, uh, has, according to multiple reports, withdrawn his name from a top Homeland Security position. Uh, we don't know yet, you know, why he did that, but that certainly would feed into that concern that people have about taking that position and chatting with somebody else Earlier here, uh, for instance, there, the U.S. attorney's position has not been filled here in Minnesota, and that is just one of, of hundreds, if not thousands, of positions, federal appointees that, that are needed uh, in terms of ambassador positions have not been filled. Uh, the Trump administration seems completely uh, bogged down uh, in not making any of these appointments. Correct. And even the judicial appointments, of which I think when he took office, there was well over 100, 120 vacancies in the federal bench. He's made some nominations, um, um, but certainly not enough to fill all those vacancies. And Congress is unable, in this case, the Senate. Senate is really not moving on very much either. And so what we're really seeing here is that his ability to be able to be successful as a president requires him to be able to, as I describe it, take hold of the reins of political power in Washington and do something with them. But instead, uh, the fact that he hasn't filled these positions, that the fact that he's that Washington is consumed with all these issues uh, makes it impossible for him to be able to wield any political power and influence to get the things done that he wants to get done. All right. Uh, we're chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. We are going to take a quick break. Uh, perhaps we can get into some of the controversies over the president's business ties. We'll have some final thoughts after we come back. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 849, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, we want to talk quickly about some new lawsuits against the president, and then we want to get to uh, the lawsuit uh, involving Governor Mark Dayton and the legislature. Uh, but first, let me ask you, uh, Professor Schultz, uh, this past week there were two lawsuits filed by the Attorneys General of Maryland and Washington, D.C., essentially saying that the Trump administration was violating the emoluments clause of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, explain emoluments to us. And this issue has come up before. Trump has defended himself. Did these have? Is there any traction to these lawsuits? I mean, are they going to be able to go forward with them? Well, well, first off, this is sort of one of the more obscure clauses of the U.S. Constitution. I was going to say, I never teach it when I teach constitutional law. And I have to add it to the mix now when I do this again. But what it was, one of the things that our constitutional framers feared was when they drafted the Constitution, was the foreign influence by, you know, by, by different governments. And the Emoluments Clause bars um, um, an officer of the United States, including the President of the United States, from accepting gifts um, or emoluments, you know, from any, you know, from any foreign foreign government. And again, the fear was that and emoluments are basically gifts. Yes. Gifts, okay. Um, gifts, um, presents, 
um, payments, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and so I would be, and so I, I guess the best way of describing it, it, it could be cash, it could be gifts, it could be a variety of different things. Um, but the idea was the fear that somehow foreign governments would try to influence the United States by giving these gifts or presents, et cetera. And the reason why, and, and, and where this historically has kicked in, for example, uh, and by the way, you, you can't accept those um, unless you're given permission, you know, by Congress, for example, to be able to do some of these things. Um, um, and where some of this has kicked in is when presidents of the United States, you know, travel abroad or are they... Uh, they receive foreign dignitaries, and they give the president of the United States something. You know, the presidents don't keep those as personal gifts. You know, they're donated to, you know, whether the Smithsonian or, or, or something like that. So, so the whole point behind it is to prevent foreign governments, I'll just simply say, from trying to obtain influence with the president of the United States by giving them, you know, some kind of gifts or items of value. And so what, what's happening is that, the the Maryland yeah, Maryland and Washington D.C. and I think maybe Democrats in Congress are thinking of doing this also, claiming that that the business dealings that the Trump administration has um, um, basically violates the Constitution. And if so, you know what this means is it, is that it would could potentially be a article of impeachment, for example, to say wow. that that he has violated the Constitution, that therefore means that constitutes a high crime and misdemeanor. Um, and, and, and they're, they're citing his hotels, exactly. and, 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 which are doing very well. There was another report that came out. Exactly. Um, is, this, is there anything to this? I think there is. There is. Now, there's, there is an argument to be made that says that anything that's done from a fair market value transaction wouldn't count as emolument. But on the other hand, we've never had a situation quite like we've had with Trump where we're looking at how perhaps a foreign government might be giving money to, to let's say, Trump businesses in return for getting personal favors from the, from the government. And the, and the parallel here that I would draw to is the criticisms that were raised against Secretary Clinton um, and the Clinton Foundation, where there seemed to have been, according to some critics and some reality, is that some foreign governments were, were giving money to the Clinton Foundation, and in return there seemed to be some pattern in terms of how the, the State Department you know, treated different countries. Now, she was never you know, sued un, under the Emolument Clause, uh, but, but here I think there's at least facially a, a, you know, an interesting argument to be made, and I'll be curious to see how it plays out. If, if nothing else, it starts to raise some significant questions regarding conflicts of interest, and that has been a subject of a lot of battles already going on in Washington right now regarding Trump and his business holdings. All right, let's shift to the lawsuit, it, 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 the, the, the uh, legislature suing the governor. The governor is, you know, fighting back. They both hired attorneys. What's going to happen here? Well, this is interesting at this point because we have, you know, they have the Republicans, you know, who have who basically have hired, you know, a, you know, a, a big time law firm. They're suing the governor. The governor has picked up at this point as his special counsel, um, Sam Hansen, who who is an a Ventura appointee for the Minnesota Supreme Court, served on the court for years, has left. He's very, very skilled. And this suggests to me a couple of different things, um, two or three different things. First, that the legislature is serious. I mean, they're suing the governor, and I think they perceive that they can actually win this suit, which is why they're not willing 
to talk to the governor. Two, the governor hiring Hansen means that he understands this is a serious lawsuit, and three, that he wants to um, actually you know, defend this. I also think what's interesting here is the fact that we've not heard very much from Laurie Swanson, the attorney general in this matter, who would be expected to defend the governor um, as she's required to do as attorney general. And I suspect, this is just complete gut intuition here, is that I suspect she is not particularly thrilled about having to defend the governor in this matter in a lawsuit that I think he's going to have a very hard time winning. And if she's thinking of running for governor, losing a big high-profile lawsuit like this would not help her career very much. And, and, you know, I think for most people, though, it's sort of time to the eyes to glaze over because, you know, without, you know, the, the possibility of a government shutdown, the impact on, on them, you know, is, you know, it's hard to, I mean, it's not direct. It's not direct. Um, you're absolutely correct. It's not direct. Um, this sort of looks like real inside baseball lawsuits going on and fights going on. But keep in mind that all these lawsuits are being filed at public expense. And so we're going to see probably, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not, you know, a few million dollars being expended through Ramsey County Court working its way up to the Minnesota Supreme Court over the next few weeks, you know, in terms of how these lawsuits play out. So that's what's going to happen. So we're going to see a lawsuit. It's already been filed in Ramsey County. Ramsey County judges are going to be, have to resolve that. At that point, the question becomes whether or not it goes through the Court of Appeals or goes up to the Minnesota Supreme Court. But they're eventually going to have to decide this issue regarding whether or not the governor can use his line item veto to basically defund the legislature. And my guess is is that the governor is going to probably lose on this suit. All right. Well, listen, your, your guesses have been, as always, <laughs> very good lately. Well, uh, David Schultz, thank you so much for coming on. Always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure also. Good night, all. All right. Thank you so much, David Schultz. And also just check out his blog, Schultz's Take. Uh, it's always good, always informative. Uh, he does just a great job. And as I said, you know, he is um, – We've been doing this like many, many years now on Saturday nights, and I think it was about a year and a half ago where we started saying to each other, this is this news cycle is getting crazy, and it's every week it seems like there's something that has happened that, that you could not even begin to imagine um, in terms of you know the developments or uh, it's 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 remarkable. So keep it here, folks. We'll we'll, we'll keep talking, uh, and I hope you keep listening. I, I do want to th- say thank you. Uh, to Kyle Sheely, uh, who produced this show this weekend. Great job, Kyle. Uh, he produces uh, Mr. John Hines' show. Great to have him. He was filling in for Susan Blanche, who was on vacation. And I also want to just give a huge shout-out. And I know that sometimes I, I don't remember or else I get caught up in something and I don't say it, but they always do such a great job, Jonathan Lowe uh, and also Kevin Reed, our two studio coordinators. I really appreciate their work every single week because they are – Great guys, and they always get uh, everything on. They get the guests on. They field the calls. So nice work uh, once again, gentlemen. I want to let you know that uh, WCCO-TV, Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. I hope it's not as crazy as it was last week. That's when all the storms broke. Uh, But we will have uh, a lot to talk about uh, again, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m., Mike Augustinak and I on WCCO Television. Have a wonderful Saturday night. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network.